John 1 through 3 and 17 through 33. Um, now a man named Lazarus was, was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and whispered his feet with her hair. So the sisters went, went, wait, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection and the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she, said, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been, wait, yeah, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Thanks be to, thanks be to God. Thank you, Quinn. I, uh, I want to introduce you this morning to my grandmother, Margaret Rose Holt. This woman was one of uh, my most favorite people on the planet. Every New Year's Eve as a kid was spent with her eating brownies and staying up just late enough to watch the ball drop. My grandmother lived about two hours from us growing up, but I have vivid memories of her at my dance recitals and at baseball games and long weekends where she would always inevitably take us to McDonald's for a gourmet breakfast and then to Kmart to pick out a toy. I remember being 13 and one night laughing with her until it hurt as we talked about what the future could hold for both of us. Her obviously retired and a greeter at Walmart and me by her side. <laughs> I remember when my sister was sick and she never once left her side as she laid in the hospital bed week after week. My grandmother really came to faith in her 50s and listened faithfully to preachers like Dr. Charles Stanley and Dr. David Jeremiah. She loved us, but she loved Jesus more. And that shaped me in a thousand ways. In 2006, my grandmother was diagnosed with non-smoking lung cancer that eventually ravaged her brain and her bones. That was the second time in my life that I remember desperately and vividly begging God to answer my prayers. 
I remember praying every hour, sometimes even every minute, for her to be healed, for God to eradicate the disease that was ravaging her body because I knew that he could. But in December of 2007, as I sat beside her hospice bed in her house, she took her final breaths and she met Jesus face to face. Now the first time I remember praying desperately this way was just a few years prior to that moment. I was 12 years old when I first had that inkling that something wasn't right in my parents' marriage. And I distinctly remember feeling that fear fill my body as I, for the first time, entertained the thought that they may not be together forever. The prayer started off, at least for me, pretty vague. As a seventh grader, I would pray for them to love each other again. I would pray for them to hold hands. I would pray for them to go on dates, things that I thought might fix what was happening. But as the years trudged along, my prayers became more like death, desperate pleas, like breath leaving my body. And even after my mom was out of the house, I remember believing that God could bring them back together, that my prayers could be heard and that God could actually do the impossible. People even prophesied over us the story of Hosea and told me that he was going to do it. But in the summer of 2003, after 24 years of marriage, the divorce was final and my prayers unanswered. For years, I was taught that God hears us when we pray, that he wants to answer our prayers and that we can actually trust God to be good. But in those particular moments, in moments I knew with clarity that God's heart for the situation was the same as mine, I began to question the truths that I had been taught in a way that tempted me not to leave God, but to believe that God's silence to my most grave and desperate requests made him out to be someone I couldn't trust. These moments left me asking, was this what God was really like? Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about suffering. We've been in a series titled, In This World You Will Have Trouble. But what we have yet to talk about is where prayer intersects with it all where our cries and petitions and requests live in our relationship to God in seasons of suffering. Many of us know that prayer in seasons of pain or loss, it really has no limits, no party lines. It is something that lives within us, often born out of both a desire for relief and help, and at the same time, a desire to hold someone responsible. When suffering comes, prayer is rarely subjugated to the religious or the few. It is the first reach and request from both the Christian and the atheist alike. But what do you do when prayer isn't working? What do you do when crying out and pleading and begging for God to give or to heal or to restore or to deliver and he doesn't or he isn't? Prayer is essential reality on the journey of suffering. But as many of us know, personally, it can equally be an obstacle to it. So what do we do with all the prayers that go unanswered? And more importantly, what do we do with the God behind them? Unanswered prayer is not a new reality in the Christian story. The struggle, the wrestle, and the questions we carry are age old. Even Jesus himself found himself in a space of unanswered prayer as he, in the Garden of Gethsemane, asked God to change his story, to rewrite his ending, only to find that he didn't. Jesus was well acquainted with unanswered prayer. 
the personal pain of it, as well as the pain of the ones that he loved. This morning, we read part of a famous Bible story about a man named Lazarus. And I would imagine that most of you are decently familiar with it. We probably know more of the nuts and bolts version, at least that part with the big ending where it's like, Lazarus, come forth, you know? Yeah, if, you, if that doesn't resonate with you, you didn't have a good Bible, Sunday school Bible teacher. Uh, that's what should have been happening in that space. Now today, I actually wanna circle back to this story, but instead of focusing on Lazarus rising from the dead, I wanna focus in on something other than that. I want us to look at what happened on the journey to it. I think that this story holds for us three really important truths when it comes to unanswered prayer. So if you're following along in your Bibles, look with me at verse one. When we pick up in our text, we are introduced to Lazarus, who we're told was ill, and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, we don't get a lot of context here for their relationship to Jesus, but from the other gospel accounts, we actually know that they were considered beloved disciples, meaning that they would have been counted among those who were regularly with Jesus. We also know that the Mary in our story is the same woman who would eventually pour perfume on Jesus' feet and wipe it with her hair as he was on his way to his death. All of this pointing us to some of the realities in their relationship. Now what's important to note is that there was a relational history here. And not just of years of friendship, but one marked by vulnerability and intimacy and trust and love. Which is why the sisters sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was ill. I think it's fair to assume that upon hearing this, Jesus would, based on the relationship, jump to it. That, you know, this was his friend. This was someone we read again in verse 5 that he loved deeply. But as we lean into our story, we actually read it was quite the opposite. Jesus responds, assured of the outcome, including that it wouldn't end in death, and then he decides to stay two more days where he is. And this was just the beginning. When we pick up at verse 17, we see that two days had passed, and Jesus begins to make their way, his way to their home. But when he arrived, he found Lazarus had died. And the scene is just as you would imagine it as some of you have actually known it. The friends and the neighbors come to flood the home, flowers, food, tissue, the whole bit. They were there to comfort the grieving sisters. And all while all of this is taking place, amongst the noise of kind words and rumbling dinner plates, Martha hears that Jesus is down the street, that he's on his way. And immediately she runs out to meet him. And I've tried over the last really few days to imagine what she must have been feeling. Maybe a sense of hope, but also a moment of rage, comfort, and disappointment. And before she knows it, we see her blurt out, if only you had been here. A familiar sentiment that seems to leak out of us when we're faced with the reality of disappointed hopes, of our best prayers going unanswered. In this moment, we find Martha confronting Jesus And not just about the facts that he didn't come, but confronting the realities of what he didn't do. She was basically saying, if he had come when they called, her brother would not be dead. If only he had intervened like he had done for thousands of others. If only he had answered their cry, there would be a different and better ending to this story. Anger and frustration, agony, disillusionment, and yet somehow, still faith. 
Jesus' next words would be key to what he was about to do. So we read on. And as he speaks, he makes what feels like an odd declaration in the midst of her deepest pain, one that seems to take the conversation in an entirely different direction. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live and never die. And then he poses to her a question. Do you believe this? To which she says, in a way that I probably wouldn't, yes, (laughs) I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, I just wanna reflect for a moment about this little snapshot of what's happening. As a pastor who gets to regularly sit with people in their pain, I can tell you that Jesus' response to this moment feels subpar at best like a low-level counseling response, like somebody needs some seminary training. So that should stir in us a question about what he is actually up to. It's in this moment that we find Jesus, despite what it seems, not avoiding her pain, but expanding her perspective. Now there's one final thing I want us to note before I sum up what we're seeing here, and it starts in verse 33. Martha ends up calling for Mary and bringing her to Jesus. And it's almost as if we're replaying the exact scene from Martha's encounter. She even says exactly what Mary had said to him. If only you had been here. What stands out in this moment is that Jesus' response was different this time. We're told that Jesus, when he saw her weeping, was deeply moved by the Spirit. And this is significant. Because while this can seem like a pretty normal human response, we actually know as we study this text that something deeper is happening. In the Greek, this phrase is better translated, he became indignant or he became very angry. This imagery is of a bull or a horse breathing loudly, snorting with aggression, which means that this would read, when Jesus saw her weeping, he became angry and indignant at the situation. Scholars say that this anger, his anger, was not about her reaction to Lazarus, but it was rooted in his disdain for the injustice they were suffering, that Lazarus had suffered. Jesus' response here was connected to a deeper reality than the relational loss he had just experienced, but more the overarching reality of the effects of sin. Jesus didn't placate or minimize, nor did he try to justify the reality that they were facing. But instead, in this moment, he entered in. And he took the form many would assume God would not take. And in verse 35, we read that famous verse that we all have memorized, Jesus weeps. Jesus enters into the sadness and sorrow of their situation. Again, not avoiding it, not trying to offer words to ease their suffering. He simply weeps with them, holding them and sitting with them in the in-between, between what could be and what wasn't. Now, what I love about this story is that Mary and Martha reveal to us the human side of unanswered prayer, the panic, the frustration, the pain, and the confusion of where we often find ourselves when God doesn't show up or do for us what we so long for him to do. And it's from their story, their engagement with Jesus that I think we see a few really important things. And the first is at the center of all unanswered prayer is relationship. 
In it, there is some measure of love and trust that informs both our asking and the expectation. It informs our expression of what we're hoping for. We see not just humanity, but relationship born out of trust and love on display here in our text. And from that, we see an honest response from Jesus that seems to be able to understand and even welcome the emotions that have come up. Relationship is central in understanding how we are to move forward in unanswered prayer. But more on that in a moment. Next, we see Jesus show up without excuses or answers, but with a revelation of himself that would change both their present and future reality. Revelation here simply means to pull back the curtain or to reveal what was already there, what was already true the whole time. And in a moment, Jesus invites them to shift their eyes as he reveals to them who he really is. And notice that he doesn't do this in a way that's dismissing their pain or distracting them from what has happened. He's not dangling some carrot over here and being like, but don't you like carrots? Instead, he actually enters in and reveals who he is as a means of offering hope to them, a hope that they had not yet perceived. This is mercy. Now finally, we see Jesus personally entering into their unanswered prayer. Notice that he doesn't just grieve with them, but he actually reveals his deepest feelings on the matter. He becomes indignant at their injustice, knowing the realities of evil himself, knowing that the same evil that took Lazarus' life would take his too. He, the one who was before all things and at the creation of all things, acknowledges the reality of the world that they are living in with all its brokenness and chaos and all the wildness that evil brings. And with them in this moment, he longs for it to be made right, entering into all the madness and all the loss just the same. This idea here of Jesus entering in should shake up our own understanding of what it is that we're actually facing. Now, these truths are powerful and honestly, they are helpful when it comes to the wrestle of unanswered prayer. But at the same time, I think we all have to acknowledge that they don't always translate. Especially when it's been four days and you're still waiting for the dead to rise in your life. In vulnerability and desperation of unanswered prayer, we often find an equally disorienting and disrupting ability to find our footing to find the balance between what we know in our head and what is happening in our heart. C.S. Lewis once said that the heart never takes place in the head, meaning that there are moments, particularly in suffering, where what we don't know doesn't, or what we do know doesn't translate to what we feel. That what we believe or have believed for years doesn't actually comfort the greater ache within us. There is a chasm between what we want to hold on to and what we can actually feel. So the question we're left to ask is what do we do to close the gap? And what is the pathway to finding our footing again and even more than that, finding our ability to stay put? How do we somehow become transformed in a way that actually changes our reality in the midst of our deepest questions and our most provoking moments? If we go back to our text, I think we'll find our place to start. When we look at the two main characters in our story, Mary and Martha, we see that both are knee-deep in grief, in their sense of abandonment and pain, 
And at the same time, they, in that moment, confronted Jesus. And this is significant because what we see them doing here is not, appeal, not only appealing to their relationship to him or even to his godness, but also expressing to him and their humanity the impact of both. Before they could receive his comfort, before they could receive revelation or even the miracle, they had to confront the only one who could have changed their situation. And the same is true for us. Before we can actually enter into God's presence, before we can ask thoughtful questions or open our eyes to the real perspective that's taking place, we have to address the layers that exist within the human experience of unanswered prayer. We have to take our experience, the relational and emotional impact seriously. We need to feel it, not fight it. And the place we start is by confronting our sadness. Sadness or grief in unanswered prayer is the byproduct of placing what isn't against the backdrop of what could be. Sadness in unanswered prayer reaches beyond a small disappointment or a light moment of offense. It is usually tethered to a greater sense of injustice and inequity. Sadness here is disappointment in circumstances that feel immovable. Wells of grief marked by the extended delay or sense of absence from the only one who can fix it. It's moments of rage in the car that have nothing to do with the person cutting us off and more to do with what we can't control in our humanity. It's the rage against the emotional reality of the brokenness all around us. It is the suffocating reality of our pain. And it's compounded when we feel like God isn't doing what we know he can do and wants to do, at least according to the scriptures, at least what all these pastors and preachers tell us, this is what he wants to do. Sadness, it's the grief and the emotional experience of unanswered prayer, and it isn't something we can ignore. Sure, you might be able to suppress it for a little bit. Some of you are very good at your containers. Some of us are spaghetti. A lot of you are waffles. Uh, It's not gonna happen, you know what I'm saying? Like Some of us can't, but some of you can. You can compartmentalize it away. Um, suppress it, but I can tell you this, waffle or spaghetti, you will eventually find it to be an interrupting thread, not only in your relationship to God, but in your relationship to others. If we don't confront our sadness and the depths of it, if we don't acknowledge the relational, but even more so the emotional impact of unanswered prayer, we will compromise our ability to find communion and to find the way forward telling God the truth about your pain, about what you're experiencing in light of what it feels like it should be, is the starting place for encounter. It is the on-ramp or the, the route to reconnection. It's the place we need the most. Next, we have to confront the silence. In unanswered prayer, we at some point or another will have to confront what feels like or is the silence of God. To actually admit that we don't think we're hearing God's voice and to acknowledge the fear and the anger that that brings up. Often in unanswered prayer, we cry out, we plead, we beg, we wail, we weep, and for years sometimes, only to hear nothing. These are the days I imagine that Mary and Martha thought, we sent word, and not only is he not here, but he hasn't even said anything about not being here. The God who speaks seems to be the God who has nothing to say. Nothing to say when we need to hear him the most. 
Silence in the midst of suffering, in the midst of our greatest petitions and most important conversations with God seems insufferable. And that is why it has to be confronted. Because if we don't, we are in danger of allowing it to keep us from the truth of who he is. If we don't confront the silence we experience in unanswered prayer, we will inevitably be left to our own interpretations of it. Some of you do this in your relationships. Not me, but some of you do this. (laughs) And in our own interpreting, we will likely impose a nature on him that is actually contrary to who he really is. In his book, The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis speaks to this very reality as he himself is processing not only the death of his mother, but his wife as well. And here, Lewis offers a greater point of view. I'm gonna share a little bit. In the story, Diggory, the protagonist, approaches Aslan, a lion representing Christ with a question. Diggory's mother is dying, and there's no cure for her condition. So when this little boy accidentally finds himself in a magical world, he approaches Aslan to ask if he might be able to offer a cure something like a piece of magic fruit that he could take back to his world and give to his mom that would make him well. Diggory nervously waits for the right moment. He's continually overthinking it. And then finally, with a gulp in his throat and knots in his stomach, he approaches Aslan and he blurts out the question. He had been desperately hoping that the lion would say yes. He had been horribly afraid it might say no. But he was taken aback when it did neither. In the face of real, critical, life-threatening need, Diggory worked up the nerve to ask, and God was silent. Suffering wore a name and a face and a story. Suffering nursed Diggory as a baby and taught him how to use a fork and a pencil, blew on his knees and snuggled him back to sleep after a bad dream. And in the face of suffering that personal, God responded to Diggory's nervous but hopeful plea with deafening silence. The love of an only child for his single mother runs so deep. So in spite of his obvious confusion and disappointment, Diggory works up the courage to approach Aslan a second time. He thought of his mother and he thought of the great great hopes he had had for her and, and how they were all dying away. And a lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes and he blurted out, But please, please won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up until then, he had been looking looking at the lion's great feet and his huge claws on them. But now, in despair, he looked up at his face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were so big, bright tears, even compared to Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Diggory saw God's heart in his face, and the shining tears standing in Aslan's eyes, he saw grief and longing, and a deep, deep sense of care. Confronting the silence of God will often demand courage and risk. Courage to look in his face, 
even amidst the silent. But it's from that perspective, from that moment, that we actually gain a new point of view that has the potential to change everything. Finally, we have to confront the source. This is where this all leads. Somewhere on the journey of unanswered prayer, after you've confronted the sadness and the silence, you will inevitably find yourself looking to the source of it all. At some point, like Mary and Martha, you will reach for whoever feels responsible. But this confrontation, unlike the others, will, while carrying with it its own questions of why he hasn't or why he couldn't or just the reality of your own limits within it, will inevitably lead you to a place where your idea of who God is or who he should be is shattered. This confrontation is the one that leads to breakthrough. In his book, A Grief Observed, again, Lewis, amidst his own suffering, said, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time, and he shatters it himself. In unanswered prayer, and like in our story, we find Jesus blowing up our idea of who he is, and doing so, so that we could know who he really is. Not a God who willed disease or death or job loss or bankruptcy or the ending of a marriage because he wants to teach us some lesson or to punish us or lead us into the place for our good. But a God who is with us in suffering and joy and who will one day bring an end to all evil and suffering. And while this shattering can feel like another blow in the midst of unanswered prayer, it can feel provocative It is necessary, and it is the starting place for our healing, for us to encounter the comfort we so desperately long for. Our view of God is often too small, church. It is often too shaped by our own limits or limited perspective, by our own parameters or definitions for goodness and faithfulness. And the good news is that God will not be bound to our emotional reality or experience, not when we are suffering and not ever. He is far too jealous for that, to let our emotional reality be the only experience of him. If we will let him, in the confronting, he will show us who he really is. That's actually what we're after, by the way, and what we need the most. In our confrontation with God, we too will find ourselves being confronted by a belief of love that is too small and by a trust that is not yet fortified. Lewis again says that this is one of the miracles of love. It gives a power of seeing through its own enchantments and yet not being disenchanted. Confronting the source of our unanswered prayer is the pathway to an experience of transforming love. You see, by confronting God in the space of unanswered prayer, we actually open the door to something else. And that is an invitation. Unanswered prayer is not for the believer, an experiment in faith or a love uh, in order to find out of what, uh, a love that's marked by trying to figure out what we're really made of. It's not a testing ground for our fidelity. God isn't like that. Instead, it is an invitation. It's a real invitation to know God more and to actually know him in a new way. Not just in the I've read about this way or my pastor told me about it kind of way, but in a way that is meant to change not only the nature of our prayers, but also our understanding of the one to whom we are praying. 
Our invitation to know God looks like knowing him in the depths of our most vulnerable and exposing places. Knowing him and what it feels like to, to stand next to him as we confront our greatest fears and our greatest failures. To know his goodness even when it doesn't match ours. To know his nearness against the backdrop of his silence. To know the language he speaks to us in suffering and to know his unwavering good and true and righteous character and nature amidst the chaotic, evil nature of the sin and fallen world. To know him, to know how he enters in and weeps with you, how he holds sorrow for what you're carrying in a way that you're not even carrying it, and how he too aches for, for things to be made right, to be put back the way it was supposed to be, to know him to know him, this is our invitation in unanswered prayer. And we can miss it if we don't lean in, if we, we get too pissed off, if we get too frustrated, if we just, we just declare somehow in our righteousness that he's not good enough. There is an undercurrent in unanswered prayer of invitation to you and me to level up and, and to have an encounter with the living God in a way that we haven't before. We don't despair because he's always ferocious about our goodness. He is jealous for your encounter and experience of him. He has not neglected or abandoned you. He is fighting for you, fighting for your affection, fighting for your attention, fighting to come close. If only we'll take him up on the offer, on this invitation that's been extended to us. Knowing God this way is born out of unanswered prayer if we will let it. Is it hot in here? It just got really hot. (laughs) Jesus must be in here, because I wore a big sweater. What a mistake, but it's cute. (laughs) The last words my grandmother spoke to us from her deathbed was ask him why. words that were equally as haunting then as they are now. My grandmother loved Jesus. She trusted him, but was equally human in her experience of death. Ask him why. As this phrase swept through my mind the night she passed, I did ask. (laughs) I asked him why he didn't heal her. I asked why he didn't rescue her why he didn't help her when she needed him the most. And the truth is, in that moment, in the depth of my sadness and disappointment, I felt God's invitation to me. It was one that I had resisted and strong-armed after my parents' divorce and after my sister's sickness. But now I just couldn't hold it back any longer. I was too weak for the fight. And it was in that season that I, like Mary and Martha, let him have it. That I confronted all of my unanswered prayers with anger and sadness and silence and passion. I wasn't polite or articulate. I was broken and desperate. And it was there that I found my footing and unanswered prayer for the first time. At the end of my screams, of my accusations and my hours of weeping, that's when I saw him, like I had never seen him before. 
And I knew him as I had never known him before. It was there that I learned that his comfort, his presence, his power, not only matched my grief and disappointment, but it outran it. I was changed by unanswered prayer. Not embittered or closed off, but transformed and baptized into a deeper love than I could have imagined. The ache for God to answer my prayers hasn't ended. In fact, today I'm holding out a few that I, even in having to write this teaching, had to confront again. What a joy. Made for some spicy nights, you know what I mean? But on my worst days, I remember that each one is an invitation to more. In unanswered prayer, we carry in our bodies the prophetic reality of the now and the not yet. The longing for shalom and wholeness as only Jesus can give it. And even on the days where our unanswered, when our answered, and even on the days when our unanswered prayers become answered, we can be confident that until we see Jesus face to face, there will be others. The question is, what will we do with them? Church, I promise you and bless you and say it to myself as well. There will be one day when all your prayers will be answered. Not, not um, blown away, not put into a special container for never you, for you to see it again, not any of this like mystical reality where God will answer yes and amen in Jesus. That is the true faithfulness of God. But until then, the invitation is ours. <laughs>